Our scripture reading for this morning is from John chapter 16. We've reached the end of uh, Jesus' upper room discourse. Of course, by this point, he's not in the upper room anymore. They've, uh, uh, they're venturing on their way toward the garden at Gethsemane. But we've reached the end of this upper room discourse, and Jesus is going to speak words of comfort to his disciples by promising two things. One, promising them sorrow, and two, promising them joy. Let's read these verses. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. You know, church, one of my convictions as your pastor is that I feel a deep responsibility to help us grow to lament well in the Christian life. That's not a thing I've said many times, and I think this is an area where we are perhaps malnourished as Christian disciples in Western cultures and in American cultures. We don't really know how to lament that well. When sorrow and difficulty and suffering comes, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to process it in a way that honors the Lord and glorifies Him. You know, this is something I had to learn over the last few years, discover over the last several years how to lament well, many of you, you can attest that the last few years have been difficult to say the least. And over the last several years, there's been uh, pretty steady periods of darkness, a dark night of the soul that has crept over me. 
And recently, the Lord has, in his kindness, brought me out of it for the most part. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that difficulty, I have had to ask the question, what do we do with it? And discover the biblical category of lament, language that we can use when life is not going the way that we thought it would. That song we sang earlier, Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call, I can't describe to you the ways in which that has ministered to me over the last several years. When all we possess is grief, we pray, God, would you still be my treasure? The question is, what do you do when darkness has settled in and the clouds do not lift from your soul? What do you do when you pray for something and you long for something to happen and you see no answer from heaven, at least not in the way that you wished it would come? What do you do when the pain and the sorrow pours over you like a never-ending wave? Maybe you know what it's like to go to the beach and you get kind of rocked by a wave and as you fall into the water, wave after wave after wave crashes upon you. Maybe you know what that's like. A while back when I was younger, uh, we were at the beach and uh, like an overconfident teenager, I thought, uh, you know what, uh, my parents warned us and everything, but I thought, you know what, I got this. It's just water. I had water for breakfast. Like, this is easy. And so I venture out into the waves, and, and one of them catches me unsuspecting, and, and all of a sudden, I tumble into the waves, and as I'm kind of spiraling, trying to get my bearings and figure out, okay, which way is up, another wave hits me, and it just starts the process all over again. You keep spinning, and after several waves hit, all of a sudden, I wash up on shore, and I'm able to take a breath again, and I decided in that moment, I don't really want to try that again. And so I did not. I may be overconfident and I may be rather dumb, but I am a quick learner. <laughs> what do you do when life feels like that, though? What do you do when your life feels, when the grief catches you unaware, the wave of grief catches you, and it feels like wave after wave after wave just keeps coming and you can't even catch your breath? What do you do then? In those moments, we need to be able to lament well. As I was studying this week in this text, it was very clear, Jesus is preparing his disciples for sorrow. He's very clear in our text. He says, you will be sorrowful. Later on, he promises them, in the world, you will have tribulation. So we should not be surprised when it comes. Jesus promised us it would. And yet, I also noticed, running throughout this text, another theme. There's the theme of sorrow, but there is also the theme of unmistakable joy in our text. Six times in this, these verses, Jesus uses the word joy or rejoice. And so you've got these two themes that are emerging. You've got the theme of sorrow and the theme of joy. And Jesus is saying, listen, expect both. And so the question then is, okay, how do both of those things exist at the same time? How can Christians be sorrowful and joyful at the same time? I think, and, and I want to show you from the text, don't just believe it because I say it. Don't believe things because I say it. Believe it if I show you it in the text. And I think the text shows that Christ himself is our joy. And that when we see Jesus, we have joy. And the life of Jesus sheds light on our lives today. We could say it like this. We could say the main point is this. Because Jesus was killed, we can expect life to be really hard. And because Jesus is alive, we can expect life to be really joyful. Jesus, when we saw last week, tells his disciples, listen, they hated me, therefore they'll hate you. 
So, in other words, he's connecting our sorrow, our suffering, the hatred of the world toward us with the fact that they killed Jesus. So, because Jesus was killed, we can expect that our lives as Christians will be really hard as followers of Christ. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have a joy that the world can never touch and can never take away. That's the main point of what we're going to see this morning. We can expect sorrow and joy at the same time. And what I'll call it this morning is resurrection joy. We'll call it resurrection joy because I'm going to argue here that the the source of our joy rests in the resurrection of our Savior. And that if Jesus is alive, therefore we have joy. And so I want to draw four truths from our text about what resurrection joy is all about, how we get it, how we live in light of it. One of them is going to be what resurrection joy is not. And three truths about what it is. First one, we'll start by resurrection joy is not the absence of worldly sorrow. It is important for us to realize that this resurrection joy is not the same thing as no worldly sorrows in our lives. But you begin again in verse 16. The context in which Jesus says these words to his disciples, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the inevitable reality that he is going to be leaving them soon. In fact, just hours after this conversation, he'll be on a cross and a few hours after that in a tomb. He's preparing his disciples for the reality that a little while longer and you're not going to see me. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly vague in these statements, but his main point is clear. He's leaving them. He's going to the cross. He's going to the tomb. They will not see him any longer. He will not be with them. That's what he's been warning them about, and that's what they most deeply fear, that their Lord, that their friend is leaving. Jesus knows he is going to the cross where he will be killed, mocked, humiliated. He'll be hung naked upon a tree left to suffocate to death, condemned like a criminal even though he himself had never done anything wrong to warrant his death, and his disciples would be scattered. Jesus would be left alone, and his disciples would be left alone. Jesus is preparing them for the coming flood, the hours ahead hold. Jesus and the disciples both see the storm clouds that are on the horizon that are gathering. Jesus is standing there telling them, let me tell you what to do. You see the storm rolling in. The waves are going to come crashing over your head. Your sorrow is going to be greater than you ever dreamed. And it's going to leave you feeling like your whole life is over. It's going to send you reeling, your life turned upside down, and you don't even know what to do. A little while later, friends, and I'll be gone. He's preparing them for what's coming. He's even more direct about it in verse 32. He tells them, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. He's preparing them for what is to come. You know, he does the same thing with us. Jesus prepares us for what to expect in life. It's wonderful news, even if it's uncomfortable news in the moment, that Jesus tells us what to expect. No one likes bad news, but isn't bad news a lot more manageable, at least, when you know to prepare for it? Like, okay, I know this is going to happen, therefore I can kind of mentally prepare myself for this bad thing that's going to happen. Jesus knows, listen, uh, I'm going to prepare you for what's going to happen. You can expect suffering. You can expect sorrow. Verse 20, he tells them, you will be sorrowful, my disciples. Followers of Jesus will be sorrowful. Verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Followers of Jesus will have tribulation and trial in the world. You have it as a promise from your Lord that your life will be sorrowful and full of trial if you follow him. 
Don't expect it to be any different. Jesus is telling us suffering, sorrow, hardship, pain, grief, it's inevitable. Life is going to be hard in a broken world. The disciples had all these ideas of what life would be like with the Messiah, and all of them were about to come crashing down, their world about to be turned upside down. And we could imagine them saying, I never dreamed, never imagined life would be like this. Have you found yourself in that same spot? I never thought my life would turn out like this. You got married, everything was blissful, and then one day your spouse looks at you and says, you know, I don't love you anymore. And you thought, I I didn't think it was gonna be like this. You dreamed of what your ideal wedding would look like, and then the years go on and you're not married and you're thinking, I wish my life was different. You dreamed of having kids, and as the years of infertility take their toll, You long for a different life than the one you have. Your kids grow up and they turn away from the Lord and the distance between you and them and them and Jesus weighs upon your soul. You go to school and you prepare for the career that you hope to have and then you you don't wind up in that field and as the years go on, those dreams slowly die. And you say, this is not the life that I always imagined I would have. You retire and you have all these hopes of what you're gonna do with your retirement and then that unexpected medical diagnosis comes. And all of a sudden, your retirement doesn't look the way that you imagined it would look. Have you found yourself in that spot? Life's not really turning out the way I thought it would turn out. It's where Jesus' disciples are in the moment. He's preparing them. He's, he's, he's giving them an anchor in the midst of that difficulty. He's preparing us to know this is what we should expect. The life that we always expected might not be the one that comes, but it is the life that Jesus gives to us and says, trust me and follow me. I've been helped by the words of John Piper. He says this, occasionally weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. Grieve the losses, feel the pain, and then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life he's given to you. Piper says there are primarily two different kinds of loss. First, those who have something precious and lose it. The second kind, those who hoped for something precious and never had it. He says, you can go about your life, and every now and then the grief just becomes overwhelming, and you are, uh, you're, you're overcome by it. He says, weep, grieve, lament, and trust. As Spurgeon said, when grief presses you to the dust, well, worship there. That's the Christian posture of lament. So before we jump to the glorious word of comfort in these words, we need to realize that this kind of suffering should be expected. This kind of sorrow should be expected. And it is commonplace to every human being in a broken world. Sorrow, suffering, trial, tragedy are commonplace for everyone who lives in a broken world. But Jesus seems to be saying that Christians should expect their sorrow to be amplified in greater ways. Sometimes we think that uh, Christians should be exempt from sorrow. Jesus seems to think Christians will have more sorrow. Let me show this to you. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says there's an added dimension to our sorrow that comes when we follow Jesus. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, When Jesus says those things, he's basically saying, pay attention, listen, listen up, listen carefully. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. It's crucial for us to understand as Christians that it is the normal experience for Christians that what the world celebrates, you will mourn. And what you celebrate, the world will hate. 
Just like the world celebrated while the disciples mourned over the death of Jesus, still today does the world celebrate sin while Christians mourn over it. That is the normal experience that Jesus told us to expect. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. They'll be celebrating, and you'll be weeping. They'll be celebrating sin, and you'll be mourning over sin. Do you see the sins that are celebrated by our culture? You see how people celebrate and applaud divorce and the devaluing of marriage all in the pursuit of self-centered happiness. You see how people celebrate and applaud same-sex marriage as a redefinition of what God said marriage is all about. You see people celebrate and applaud abortion and the belittling of human life that comes with it. And all the while, as you see the, the, the world celebrating these things, you mourn deeply and you grieve. And Jesus said we should expect it. We should expect it that our non-Christian friends, the things that they celebrate, the ways they spend their weekends, the way they spend their times, and what they take great joy in are things that cause us to mourn and grieve. Jesus said, you will have sorrow. And part of that sorrow comes in seeing a world that celebrates things that are opposed to our Lord, celebrates the death of Jesus while the disciples mourn the death of Jesus. He told us it would be this way. And yet... In the midst of this morning, there is a clear word of comfort to the disciples. Jesus says, listen, your sorrow, in this world you will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And we see there's another truth, and this resurrection joy means treasuring the resurrected Christ. Resurrection joy means treasuring the resurrected Christ. Jesus says, listen, a little while later, and I'll be raised from the dead. And he says, when that happens, my friends, your sorrow will be transformed into unmistakable, unchangeable, and unending joy. Look at what he says, verse 21. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also now you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Church, here's what's vital to see. The reason why your sorrow turns into joy is the empty tomb of Christ. Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, I'm leaving you, and, and we know he's heading to the cross. We know before long he will be in a tomb, and they will have great sorrow, but in a little while, their sorrow will turn into great joy that the world can never take away from them. Why? Because Jesus will be alive, and when Jesus is alive, that sorrow turns into joy. He uses the illustration of a woman who gives birth, and the sorrow and the pain that comes with that, and any woman in here who has given birth certainly knows there is sorrow and pain and discomfort that comes through childbirth. And Jesus here is speaking of days pre-epidural. And how many women in the midst of their labor think something like, I'm never going to do this again? And within a few years, guess what? There's another, ch another child. It's because the pain is temporary. The sorrow of childbirth is temporary. And the joy that comes after is completely worth it. When you hold your baby boy or your baby girl in your arms, you say, that sorrow, it was all worth it. It's a comparison Jesus is making. And here's what he says for his disciples. It says, this is what your experience will be like. You'll have sorrow now and pain now, but it will all be worth it. And notice what Jesus says makes it all worth it. Here's the connection. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Do you see what he's saying? The joy comes with seeing Christ. As the woman's sorrow turns into joy at the sight of her baby, so does the Christian's sorrow turn into joy at the sight of our risen Lord. 
When the disciples see Christ resurrected from the dead, their sorrow would turn into joy. The secret behind joy in the Christian life is the resurrection of Jesus. That as long as he is alive, therefore we have great joy. Your sorrow turns into joy. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here, friends. The decisive moment that turns your sorrow into everlasting joy is the resurrection of Christ. The birth of a whole new creation, a whole new world, a whole new people. And at that new birth, there'd be a dramatic transformation. The despair and the discouragement and the distress of the disciples would become lasting joy upon seeing Christ. And Jesus tells them, and no one will take your joy from you. This kind of resurrection bought joy in the person of Christ is unshakably eternal and nothing can take it away. And the reason nothing can take it away is because this joy is found in seeing the resurrected Christ. Our deepest delight and our deepest joy comes in treasuring the person of Jesus more than the gifts of Jesus. See, if our joy rests upon circumstances, Jesus really could not promise us, no one will take that joy from you because we think the world can take your joy in circumstances in a moment. You can be riding high, having an awesome day, and then someone makes a hurtful comment to you, and all of a sudden, joy is gone, sorrow has set in. If joy rests in circumstances, Jesus cannot make to us the promise that no one will take it from us. You could be enjoying a certain season of life, and guess what? That season comes to an end. The kids grow up, they get married, they move out of the house. Your job changes. The project you were working on and you enjoyed, guess what? It's different now, and you're reassigned to a different project that's not quite as enjoyable. Or maybe you get a new job and have to move to another city. Life changes. Death, sickness, suffering, change. These are unwelcome intruders into the safe haven of our comfortable lives. And if our joy rests upon the circumstances, then it is just as easy for your joy to turn into sorrow as it is for your sorrow to turn into joy. But when Jesus himself is our greatest joy, then that joy becomes untouchable. Because here's what it means. Your joy, church, is tied to his resurrection life. Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy when you see me. And this joy will never be taken away. Jesus is alive. The mourning of the disciples turned into joy when they saw him alive. And in order for that joy to be taken away from them, and in order for that joy to be taken away from us, Jesus would have to be put back in the tomb. As long as he is alive, so too do we have joy. The resurrection is the grounds, the hope of our joy, and it means we'll delight in Jesus forever. He himself is our treasure. And think about the kind of unshakable joy that this brings to Christians when we know this is true. It does not mean Christians are ignorant and just pretends like everything's okay, even though we know it's not. We all know people who aren't actually dealing with the pain and sorrow of a broken world, and you think you're just ignoring it, you're pretending it's not there, that's not helpful. That's why we need the category of lament, we need to know how to process it and to, to feel the pain, to grieve the pain. We've just, we've just seen Christians experience a great deal of suffering in a broken world. But Christians also have great joy in the midst of it. The Bible says Christians are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And the reason why is because Jesus is always alive. We can always be rejoicing and always have grounds for joy because our joy rests upon the resurrected Christ. No matter how tough your life may be, you have joy because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Think about how this anchors a Christian in the midst of suffering. We could think of the Apostle Paul, for example. I mean, that's, that's a guy marked by great, deep joy, and yet none of us, if we're familiar with the life of Paul, would ever say he didn't have much suffering. 
Paul suffered in ways greater than most of us could ever imagine, and yet he had a deep joy in the midst of it. You think about what his life was like upon coming to Christ. They're constantly trying to kill him and getting him to stop. They say, shut up about this Christ you're preaching about. And Paul says, I'll never stop preaching because he's alive. So what do they do? They throw him in prison. And what does he do in prison? He keeps preaching, singing, and he converts all their guards. And so what happens? They let him out of prison. He keeps preaching the gospel. And so then they threaten, hey, guess what, Paul? We're going to kill you. Okay, well, to die is gain. We're going to let you live. To live is Christ. I mean, you cannot touch this guy. Great sorrow, great suffering, great difficulty, and yet great joy. Because he had encountered the risen Jesus. And he knew, if Jesus is alive, therefore I have joy. Here's the reality, friends. You will only be as joyful as your confidence that Jesus is really alive. Could it be that the reason many of us don't live with more joy in our lives is that we live each and every day practically as if Jesus wasn't really alive and it doesn't really have much to do with our lives today if he is or not? Is it because we live as if our joy rests more in the circumstances that he gives to us than in the person of Jesus? Maybe you've come to think that being a good Christian means you just kind of ride this feel-good emotional high that carries on throughout the rest of your life. Everything's happy, everything's great. That's not the life Jesus calls us to. Jesus says there'll be plenty of moments where we feel sorrowful and despairing, where life is not going the way we wanted, where we mourn while others around us celebrate. And he says, in those moments, what do you do? Remember the resurrection. Our faith is not primarily based upon a feeling. Anyone who's been married any length of time knows that there are seasons where you won't feel very much in love. And if the whole marriage is rooted in a feeling, it's not gonna last. But if it's resting on something deeper than that, and a commitment to love and serve your spouse all the way to the end, if it rests on something deeper than what you're feeling in the moment, it will last. And Jesus says, listen, your faith does not rest upon what you're feeling right now. Right now, you might be going through sorrow and difficulty and pain and struggle, but your faith does not rest upon what you feel. It rests upon what you know to be true. Jesus is alive, and therefore, I have hope. Therefore, I have joy. Right now, life's hard, but Jesus is alive, and therefore, I can keep going with joy amidst the sorrow. We need to regularly remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus. We need to regularly remind ourselves, Jesus is alive, therefore I can have joy and face whatever this day holds. Resurrection joy comes through treasuring the resurrected Savior. You wonder though, how does this actually happen on a daily basis? How do we remember the resurrection of Jesus and experience this kind of joy in Christ on a daily basis. Jesus, I think, tells us in our text. He says that prayer is the pathway to this joy. So resurrection joy comes through Christ-exalting prayer. Let me show you, verse 23. Jesus says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And he says, there's coming a day, verse 26, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you love me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, you have direct access to the Father in prayer. Up to this point, they basically said, hey, Jesus, here's what we want, figure it out. And Jesus says, listen, you can go to the Father. The Father loves you. 
you can go to him and ask. And this is why the normative way we pray is we pray to our heavenly father and we pray in Jesus' name. We come to our father. Jesus, Jesus told us, come, ask, go to the father and ask in my name. And we come to the Father. The, the reason we have access before the Father is because of what Christ has done for us. And we say, listen, I'm coming bearing the divine seal of Jesus, and I'm asking. He, he told me to ask, and I'm going to ask. And so we ask the Father in the name of Jesus. And Jesus tells them, ask, and you will receive. He's told this to them several times in this upper room discourse. For example, chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Chapter 14, verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Chapter 15, verse 16, I chose you so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you see over and over and over again, Jesus is simply saying to his disciples, ask, ask me, come to the Father, ask in my name and I'll do it. How often do we get tripped up by this very first and very simple instruction? Ask. How many of us do not have because we do not ask and do not take Jesus seriously even on this very thing? How many of us have regular daily habits of complete dependence and desperate asking before the Father? Jesus tells us, ask. And maybe sometimes the reason we don't ask is because we aren't sure what it means to ask in Jesus' name. Because you think, well, you know, I have been asking for a long time and I see no answer. So you wonder, is Jesus actually lying here? Or you think, well, maybe this isn't as good of a news as it seems because maybe Jesus is saying, if you ask in my name, means if you agree with me. So I'll do whatever I want anyway. So as long as you ask and what I'm thinking, then sure. And you say, well, then why pray? You know, Jesus is not giving us a blank check and telling us, I'll do whatever you wish. But he is saying this, I do have your best interests in mind. When you come and ask, I'll give you what you really need. I will give you joy to the full. Jesus will always answer our prayers in a way that leads us to greater and deeper joy in him. Guaranteed. Right? Let me show you the text. Again, don't believe just because I say it. Let me show you the text. I think this is what Jesus is saying. Verse 24. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. Do you see him connecting the fullness of joy with prayer? Ask and you receive that your joy may be full. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're praying in a way that's in accordance with his will, saying, God, would you do your will? But you are also praying in a way that is leading you to the fullness of joy. Because for the Christian, the will of Christ being accomplished is our greatest joy. The glory of Christ and the joy of Christians are not at odds. They are actually one and the same. Christ gets more glory when Christians have more joy in him. And Christians get more joy in him when Christ gets more glory. When we ask for Jesus, in Jesus' name, for Jesus' will to be done, we are asking for our joy to be full. These things fuel one another. Asking Jesus to do his will leads us to more joy. I want him to get the glory. I want his way to be done so that I, my joy may be full and complete in him. Notice Jesus connects our joy in our prayer lives in such a way, he says, the fullness of joy comes through prayer. Which means we could say that if you're serious about joy, and who among us is not serious about joy? If you're serious about joy, you will be serious about prayer. 
If you want more joy, spend more time in prayer. Piper says it like this, prayerlessness always produces joylessness. If you hear Jesus say these things about fullness of joy and you say, I don't have that fullness of joy in my life, here's very simply what he's calling you to do. Ask him. Pray. Spend time in prayer. Say, I don't see this fullness of joy in my life. Devote yourself to prayer. And the more you go to him in prayer, the more you come to have him as your greatest joy, and the more you realize that having him as your greatest treasure means more to you than anything else, and therefore, my joy is full in him. That's what he does through our prayers. And it's interesting how Jesus connects these realities in this upper room discourse as to what leads to the fullness of joy. There's a lot of talk out there these days about how to have uh, the, the, the joyous life, the best life. We think it comes from looking within or following our own hearts. Jesus tells us directly in the upper room discourse two pathways to this kind of fullness of joy. And they might not be what we expect. He says, these two pathways to the fullness of joy are obedience and prayer. You want the fullness of joy? Here's where it comes. Obey me and ask me. It's not the way we tend to think of it. Here's what he says in chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You notice that? If you keep my commandments, your joy may be full. So he says, you want joy? You want the fullness of joy? Obey him. Here in our text, he says, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. You want joy? Ask him. Pray. Obey and pray. That's the way to the fullness of joy. The joy he talks about is joy in him. You will not have joy in Jesus if you're regularly disobeying him and not regularly communing with him in prayer. Jesus has in mind our best interests, and what he has in mind is the fullness of joy to satisfy us completely in himself forever. So what this prayer-produced resurrection joy in the person of Christ leads to is peace amidst the trials. We see this, the resurrection joy leads to peace in Christ's victory. Again, he is not saying that this joy will come through the absence of trials. It will come through trusting the resurrected Savior in the midst of them. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 33. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. The whole purpose behind what he's been saying to the disciples is that they would have peace and comfort amidst the trials. Comfort amidst the sorrow of life. And he continues, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He uses their word that many of you are familiar with. In fact, some of you are wearing that word right now. It's the form of the word Nike, meaning victory or conquering or overcoming. John loves this word, especially in the book of Revelation. And Jesus here says, listen, I have won the victory. I've conquered. I've overcome. Jesus has triumphed. He reigns supreme over all of it. He has overcome all the evil, all the sorrow, all the pain. He reigns over everything. We can take heart amidst the darkness because we know that our Lord and our friend reigns over everything in the universe. The cross would not conquer Christ. He would conquer death through his own death. 
The grave would not have victory over Jesus. He would display his victory over all things when he walked out of the tomb. The evil forces of darkness would not win the war against Christ. He overcame them through his triumphant resurrection. Take heart, Christians. Jesus, your friend, has overcome the world. He has conquered. He triumphs. He reigns over all things. He has the victory. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So he tells us, yes, you will have tribulation now. Yes, you will have suffering now. But your friend is the ruler of the universe who has conquered. And his is the victory. And he came to bring us peace. It's interesting that at his birth, the arrival of the Messiah, the angels in the skies over Bethlehem declared this very thing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So how fitting is it that at the beginning of his life and now here, right near the end of his life, there's a declaration, I have come to bring peace. And the reason we need this peace is because we are not naturally at peace with God. We are his enemies. We are rebels against him. But Jesus came to bring us peace through his death and resurrection. That as he hung upon the cross, the innocent one condemned to die, He took the sins of all who would trust in him to purchase for us peace with God. That we who are naturally his enemies have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The book of Romans says, since we have been justified, that is made right with God by faith, not by our works, but by faith in him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Ephesians says, listen, this peace is not something you have to go out there trying to find and discover somewhere along the way. He himself, the Bible says, is our peace. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to know this is what he came to bring you. He came to bring you this kind of peace. Peace with God. That we as sinners are enemies with him and we can be made right through the blood of Jesus. Now maybe this morning you're thinking, okay, wait a second. If Christianity means all this sorrow and all this trial, I'm not sure I really want this. It is good to carefully weigh the cost before coming to Jesus. It will not mean an easy life. But it's a little short-sighted to assume that only Christianity is the pathway that includes sorrow. Everybody in this world suffers. We live in a broken world. We see the pain, we see the sorrow. It belongs to Christians and non-Christians alike. But Jesus came to say, guess what? That sorrow won't last forever for those who are believers in me. The old Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he said this to those in your shoes from this text. He says, to have to fight this life battle without Christ is sure defeat. And what a discovery it will be when having struggled through one life of sorrow, you shall find yourself beginning another life of greater sorrow, which will never come to an end. It is an awful thing for a man to go from hell to hell, to make this world a hell and then find another hell in the next world. But it's a blessed thing to go through 50 hells on the way to heaven if such a thing could be. It is glorious to struggle on through poverty and sickness and persecution and at last hear the words, well done. That will be glorious. 
His point is everyone experiences sorrow and suffering, but Jesus came to free us from the eternal sorrow, the eternal suffering, the eternal torment, and give us peace with God forever. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who died in our place and rose triumphant over the grave. Because he is alive, everyone who trusts in him will have peace with God forever. That's what awaits believers. So brothers and sisters, we have peace with God. It's not a peace that comes through the absence of trials. It's a peace that rests in the midst of them. And I think our Lord gives us a good picture of what this looks like. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you might be familiar with the time where Jesus' disciples were out on the sea in a boat, and a storm blows in. And the storm's raging around, and they're looking for help, and they go to Jesus, and where do they find him? They find him asleep in the boat. And thinking, what are you doing? Don't, don't you realize the storm going on all around you? How can you rest in the midst of this? Well, that's the exact posture for Christians to take. We're in the midst of the storm. Christianity doesn't deliver us out of the storm. It gives us peace in the midst of it. That we can rest in and take joy in Christ in the middle of the storm because we know him. Jesus is victorious. We have a peace that cannot be touched by the things of the world. We have a joy that cannot be taken away from us. Christ has won the victory. He overcame Satan, sin, and death for us, that all who trust in him will have this never-ending, never-changing peace and joy that will never be taken away from us. And so as believers right now, we live in between two different residences. We have two different addresses right now. Notice what Jesus says in these words. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Right now, we have two different homes, so to speak. We live in Jesus and in the world. The world brings sorrow. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have sorrow. In me, Jesus brings peace and joy. The fact that we are still residents of earth means we will have tribulation and sorrow that comes from living in a broken world. But the fact that we are joined with Christ means we'll have peace and joy in the midst of it. And guess what? These two residences are not equal. Jesus, take heart. I have overcome the world. The joy and the peace of Christ overcomes the sorrow and the tribulation of the world because he reigns victorious over all things. There's a moment late in uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that I've always loved. At the, uh, the, the end of their long and arduous journey to destroy the ring in the fires of Mount Doom, Frodo and Sam, they've finished their task and they lay on the, the, the banks of the mountain and they realize we're not gonna get out of here alive. Frodo, in fact, confesses to Sam that hope, hopes fail, an end comes. We are lost in ruin and downfall, and there is no escape. You've been to those moments where it feels like, okay, all hope is lost. This is the end. I don't see how there can be a bright future ahead of me now. Well, they fall asleep, and if you know the story, they awake, and guess what? They're not dead. And so Sam wakes up, and he looks over, and first Sam's like, I'm alive. And he looks at Frodo. Frodo's alive. And he looks over, and there's Gandalf. And last they knew, he was dead. Gandalf's alive. And Sam's like, this is amazing. And so here's what he exclaims. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer the Bible gives us is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. We see sorrow and pain now. We see dangers and tribulations all around us. We see plenty of moments that threaten our hope, but everything sad is going to come untrue. The dawn of a new day has already broken because Jesus was dead and now he's alive, never to die again. 
So brothers and sisters, yes, for a little while, we will have suffering. For a little while, we will have sorrow. For a little while, life will be painful. For a little while, we will be filled, filled with questions and doubts about what God is up to. For a little while, we'll feel like our life is not going the way we hoped it would. For a little while, we will shed tears and bear grief. For a little while. But Jesus came to give us joy to the full, peace in the trial through his conquering victory. Because he's alive, we can walk with confident joy and peace in the midst of the sorrows and the trials we face today, and no one will be able to take it away from us. Take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Jesus is alive, never to die again. Therefore, my friends, we have a resurrection hope in Christ that will never be taken from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope we have in Jesus, our Lord. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us, to rescue us, that while we were enemies with you, you have brought us peace through our Lord. We thank you for the fact that you don't sugarcoat the expectations of life, that you tell us what to expect, that sorrow will come, difficulty will come, and you strengthen us in the midst of it. Give us strength to hold fast to you as we know you hold fast to us. Give us strength to love you as we know you first loved us. Give us strength to follow you, obey you, come to you regularly in prayer. You say, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So Lord, we ask you, would you satisfy us with Christ our Lord and give us a peace and a joy in him the world can never touch. We thank you for your victory over all things, Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in your most holy and most precious name. Amen.